Uh, well, we are continuing this morning in our series on tuning in to the Spirit. And uh, I kind of, obviously in doing a series on tuning into the Spirit, it would be important for you to tune into the Spirit while you're doing it. So I didn't feel released to go on into the next message that I'd anticipated and just felt as though the Lord wanted us to spend a little bit more time in something we talked a little bit about so far. But I believe the Lord wants to minister further to us in this particular area. I've titled the message this morning, Discrepancy and the Hope for a New Normal. As we've talked about this series, I hope this series will expand into a church that believes for a new normal. That what's normal in the life of the church, in our lives as believers, uh, won't get dragged down by what's familiar. What's familiar is not necessarily normal. You know, the Bible gives us what's normal. And we need some hope for a new normal, especially as we delve into this series and we discover that, that there's, some, there's some discrepancy in our lives. And that, I hope that's not news to you, that there is a discrepancy between what the Bible says the Christian life can be like and what it really is like. Are you in touch with that in your own world? That you hear things from Scripture that are high and lofty and amazing and impressive and, and, and aiming way up here, and then, then we kind of pull our experience into that. And, you know, as we walk through these categories of the ministry of the Spirit, I think we're going to encounter the reality that there's a discrepancy in all these ways that the Spirit is given to our lives, and yet what we're experiencing falls so drastically short of that. So what do we do with discrepancy? What do we do with discrepancy when we encounter it? And we want to experience the power and presence of God, but there's discrepancy in our lives. What do we do with that? I want to address that for a moment. Look at this thought from Martin Lloyd-Jones, his book Joy Unspeakable. He says, the second danger then is that of being satisfied with something very much less than what is offered in the Scripture. And the danger of interpreting Scripture by our experiences and reducing its teaching to the level of what we know and experience. And I would say that this second is the greater danger of the two at the present time. People come to the New Testament and instead of taking its teaching as it is, they interpret it in the light of their experience, and so they reduce it. They take what they have and what they are as the norm. All right, we, we read in the Bible about the ministry of the Spirit when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. And then we look at our own lives, and we, we, there's a discrepancy there. And our temptation is to pull what the Bible says closer to where we are. We take what the Bible teaches about gifts, these amazing activities that God has given to the body of Christ in order for ministry to take place. And then we look at our experience, and we haven't experienced a bunch of these things, right? There's lots of activity in the spirit that is foreign to us. And so the church begins to, I want to say, dumb down the Bible to make it sound more like where we are. Power over sin, that last song that we sang, that there's, there's this ability by the Spirit to have victory over 
the influence of sin in our lives. But yet our experience may be here and the Bible may be preaching here. And so what we make normal is we pull the Bible down closer to us. And so we start feeling like, well, it's normal to have this struggle with sin. It's normal for holiness to be lived at this level. It's normal to experience only this amount of spiritual gifts. It's normal for there to be a lack of love and joy and peace that the Bible depicts as being off the charts characteristic of the people of God. And we normalize things, and that's, that's a danger. But what do we do with this discrepancy? Do we just settle in and say this is just the way it is? How do we get free from living in that? I want to I normalize in one sense that discrepancy is going to be real. Look in Isaiah chapter 63 with me. Discrepancy is a reality, and quite honestly, you need to be prepared for it. You live in a fallen world. Sin still operates here. Sin still operates in you and me. So when we encounter this fallenness, there's this sense of discrepancy in our experience. What do you do when you encounter that? You get knocked off your feet? Are you surprised by that? Do you settle in and it just becomes okay that that exists? Look at this passage from Isaiah, chapter 63 and verse 7. He says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Boy, I'll tell you what, if you want to get into some deep, rich, helpful theology, and we're going to tap into this a little bit today, According to what? Why has God done what he's done? Right? That's what that verse is trying to highlight. According to what? God did these things in our lives, but according to what? According to his compassion and his steadfast love. Right? Huge character reference issues for God. Verse 8. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. I look over into chapter 64. This, this is a prayer of Isaiah that he continues. And listen to the cry of his heart. Verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Right? Isaiah is encountering with the people of God discrepancy. Right? The Bible has promised one thing to the people of God. 
And Isaiah is experiencing something different. As a matter of fact, it's so bad at this point. You get into verse 60, chapter 64, he says, we've become like those over whom you've never ruled. That's how bad it is, God. It's as though we have never known you. It's as though we're a heathen nation, a people who've never been taught by you. That's how bad it's become. So in the moment of this great discrepancy, what does Isaiah sound like? He says, God, oh, that, that you would rend the heavens, God, that you would just pull back this separation from us and you would come down and your presence would once again be amidst your people. And at some point we're going we're gonna to go into some of these little intangibles here because I love the descriptions of God's presence being there. The earth quakes at the presence of God, right? You've got these mountains of life that just stand still and they don't move, right? You've got stuff like that in your life. Until the presence of God comes and these mountains begin to shake and rumble and God moves them. And then there's this little intangible outbreak. There's stuff that God does by his presence in our lives. I call them intangibles because you kind of can't, you can't touch them. Right? Like when fire sets brushwood to flame. Like here's a bush sitting there and all of a sudden the presence of God and that thing just ignites. Or the mystery of when this heat touches water and it begins to boil. See, that's a description of what what the presence of God does in the midst of the people of God. That our walk would be like that. That we wouldn't just be a people collected because that's who Israel was at this point. Just a people collected. But they weren't experiencing the, the boiling hot presence of God in their midst. And that's how Isaiah responds. So, I mean, you look around and you put yourself in Isaiah's position. And you look around, and you look at the church, you look at our church, and you find places where it sounds and looks as though we have become like a people over whom you've never ruled. You see that in your own life, and you see that in people's lives around you. That's not normal. We don't want to let that become normal. We want to sound like Isaiah, oh God. God, that you would rend the heavens and come down and shake these things and bring the heat, God, into our lives, that there would be this awakened zeal and fire and passion about who we are, that we would be a people under a burden, that the invisible weight of God would begin to shake things in the midst of our lives. And we would no longer be normal. That's Isaiah's response. Now listen, if you... Visit church history, you're going to need to, be, need to be prepared for the fact that there's moments where there's discrepancy. God moves and there's moments when it seems like God is not moving. And we need to be ready. I go back all the way into the late third century. Origen writes, this is Eddie Hyatt in his book on historic charismatic Christianity. He says, Origen was the first early church father to indicate that supernatural ministry was becoming less common. He points to the abundance of supernatural signs in the ministries of Christ and the apostolic church. Then he remarks, but since that time, these signs have diminished. Right, so you don't, get, you don't get three centuries into the life of the church when, when we're already seeing a diminishment of the activity of the Spirit in the midst of the people of God. Right in the 1700s, John Wesley wrote about that time period. He was actually referencing a, a group that was a bit of a sect 
some question whether they were really Christians or not, but there was this amazing phenomena taking place in their midst. And Hyatt records that Wesley wrote the following response in his journal on August 15, 1750, that the grand reason why the miraculous gifts were so withdrawn was not only that faith and holiness were well nigh lost, but that dry, formal, orthodox men began even then to ridicule whatever gifts they had not themselves and to decry them all as either madness or imposture. I find that interesting being written in the 1700s by John Wesley. Right? We thought, kind of some of us may have thought uh, Warfield gave birth to cessationism. That, that's been around for a long time. People believing that the miraculous intervention of God by the Holy Spirit lived in an era of the beginning of the church and then ceased. And then folks interpreted that into people's experiences, began to ridicule the experiences that others were having. And John Wesley highlights that even in the third century, you were beginning to see a decline of the supernatural because of those types of attitudes that were in the church. So there was, there was decline then. Jonathan Edwards uh, in the 1700s was a pastor that God used to lead New England and great portions of America into what we know historically as the Great Awakening, right? Now, anything that needs to be awakened is what? Asleep, all right? So we, we move into the Great Awakening out of a revelation that the church is in a place of discrepancy, needing to go into the Great Awakening, right? So listen to these thoughts from his writing He says, and then it was in the latter part of December that the Spirit of God began extraordinarily to set in and wonderfully to work amongst us. And there were very suddenly one after another, five or six persons who were to all appearance savingly convened. And some of them wrought upon in a very remarkable manner. This work of God as it was carried on and the number of true saints multiplied soon made a glorious alteration in the town. So that in the spring and summer following, anno 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love nor of joy, and yet so full of distress. Is that a strange sentence to you? I mean, you understand when the Holy Spirit begins to move, right? When you, if you don't just put the Holy Spirit on one dial, he broadcasts in many bandwidths. So you have, you have the Holy Spirit that is working in some people's lives, awakening the sense of joy and the reception of love. But in other people's lives, he's doing a deep work of conviction in their lives. And these folks are under distress. Listen, some of us need to, you know, again, we, we live in this American comfort zone mentality that, that our primary goal is to find comfort at all expense. You know, when, when the little warning lights go off on your dashboard... They mean something. It means something is broke. Some, you need to pay attention to something. You need to stop. When it turns red, that means stop doing something. Right? Distress in your life sometimes can, can be that way. I, I, now it, it's, it's not unbiblical. It might even be a good thing. If when the warning light goes off, you begin to pray that the warning light would stop. That's okay. You can do that. But the warning light's trying to tell you something, right? So we bump into distress, and sometimes that's a warning light on the dashboard, and the Holy Spirit is doing something in our lives. He's convicting us. He's making life feel awkward. We feel distressed. 
that's so that you'll fix the part that's broke. It's not so that you'll pray for the warning light to go away. It's like God stopped the distress. God's saying the distress is trying to tell you something. It's a move of God in your life. And one of the things I think we we're concerned about as pastors is how many of us, we want a move of God, but we want a move of God in a really narrow category, and we don't recognize God's moving all over the place in our lives. Do you understand that distress in your life could be a move of God? You've been praying all these years, God, move, move in my life, God, move in the church, and, and you go into this period of distress, and you're, and you're not recognizing God's moving. He is bringing a sense of discomfort into your life. He's bringing conviction into your life. He goes on and he says, there were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought unto them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn and husbands over their wives and wives over their husbands. The goings of God were then seen in, the, in his sanctuary. God's day was a delight, and his tabernacles were amiable. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. And the assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress. Others with joy and love. Others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Those amongst us who had been formerly converted were greatly enlivened and renewed with fresh and extraordinary incomes of the Spirit of God. This was the Great Awakening. This is Jonathan Edwards describing the Great Awakening. It was not a long period of time. It was a few years in which the Holy Spirit worked in amazing, deep ways, bringing conviction and conversion and change. And literally entire towns were changed by the activity that God began in the church. But if you continue to read historically of what, what came after that period of time for Jonathan Edwards, it's recorded here by Strawn and Sweeney in their book on Jonathan Edwards' life. It says, though many people who came to faith in the revival prospered spiritually, others fell away leaving Edwards to battle discouragement and doubts about his own pastoral ability and faithfulness. Indeed, this was not the only time in his career that the Northampton pastor watched as the joy of spiritual awakening gave way to discouragement and malaise. Even in the happiest moments of his career, it seems, Edwards often had to confront religious declension. The people of God in the grips of decline. Built, built into our lives in a fallen world is this downward pull that creates a discrepancy between what the Bible says about our lives and what we experience about our lives. And there are moments when the decline is decreasing, we're making advances, and there are moments when it is not. Many of us can look back in our own personal walk, and you can remember... Some time period where you would say, remember when the, when the Spirit was moving? Right? You remember? And you look back. Remember when the Spirit was moving? Oh, the Spirit was really moving back then. Right? Can everybody remember some times like that? Can you recognize that your experience has declined maybe in some way? But if you, if you, I grew up here in New Orleans, got saved in 1979. 
and during that time period, the late 70s into the early 80s, there was a particular church here in town that was just thriving. As a matter of fact, if you bumped into somebody who was a believer and you asked them something about their faith, more than likely they were going to tell you that they got saved in that church or they were going to that church or they were going to an event at that church. I mean, this was before sort of the mega church outbreak and there were three, 4,000 people in this church. And God was doing some amazing things. You know, that church today has probably 150 people in it. There are, there are moments where our experience declines. And, and listen, what effect does that have on us? Does it, does it produce this settled in? We're just going to be we're gonna be satisfied with less. We're going to be okay. We're not going to press. We're not going to try and receive from God. We're not going to stop sounding like Isaiah, and we're going to call that normal. This thought from Francis Chan wrote a book called The Forgotten God recently, and it's about the Holy Spirit. It's about the declining ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. He says, I think the fear of God failing us leads us to cover for God. This means we ask for less, we expect less, and are satisfied with less because we are afraid to ask for or expect more. And how many of you guys have related to God where you know God has said there's more and we begin to ask for it, but we don't experience it, so we we get disappointed and we do that over a number of times and next thing you know, we don't want to take that risk anymore, right? We, we don't want to risk our faith that I'm going to believe God for this. This is what the word sounds like. It sounds like, oh, God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And you would shake mountains and the heat of your presence would set things on fire. Well, you pray that a few times and it doesn't happen. What does your prayer life turn into then? What do you start praying for then? You start pulling your prayers closer to your experience? I'm not experiencing that. Maybe God doesn't do that anymore. Maybe that was for them. Maybe that's just the first century. Maybe that's just what the church experienced in Acts. Listen, this is why we need a new normal. Because we've taken normal and we've pulled it down to whatever our experience is and we've called that normal. We might need to take some, some risks in our faith. We might need to risk believing that God wants to do these things in our lives. Right, so I'm, I'm going to run off on that at some point in the future here. But let, let me talk for a moment just this morning about departing from discrepancy. Right, what do you do when you're encountering discrepancy? Your, your walk is at a point of discrepancy. You see some real lack in your life. And, and we're going to encounter that, so I think we need some help. Turn to Galatians chapter 3 with me. Apostle Paul addresses a moment of discrepancy in the Galatian church here. And I want you to pay very careful attention. I'm going to give you two examples from the Old Testament of where does God go to, to sort of get us back on track? How right? I many of you guys... Uh, Probably everybody here is at some point you've had to put something into a Ziploc bag. Now you've had this experience, I can tell. 
Ziploc bags, they're, they're great inventions, but they're probably invented in hell or something. Because when you try to close these things, right, they've come up with all kinds. There's, there's a zipper feeling now, so you can feel when it's, you know, that's the zip you know, thing. Then there's the, the uh, yellow and green makes blue kind of a thing, right? You got color coordination help here. And obviously, somebody knew this is an engineering marvel. It's a plastic bag, but who can get these things to close, right? So you... You're pinching it, you're pinching it, and you fill it up with stuff, and, and just all comes out. It's like, all right. What's the key to closing the Ziploc bag? You got you to go to the edge, right? You got to start where it starts. Get it on track right there, and, and then, then you can zip the whole thing close. You start in the middle. I mean, you, you're for hours. Your kids will go away, watch a football game, come back, and you're still <laughs> trying to get the bag to close, and it's closed on one piece, but, oh. Jeez, right? All right, well, this is what Paul does. Paul takes us to a Ziploc bag experience here as he tries to adjust discrepancy for the Galatians. Chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Right? He just came out of a, an explanation for how they are trying to introduce the works of man into the grace of God, right? So they have, they have departed from sound teaching in this moment. Here's the discrepancy. So he is highlighting a church's discrepancy, calling them foolish. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. All right, here's the Ziploc bag. Let me ask you only this. Here's what's going to fix where you guys are. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, right? keep those things together theologically, that's helpful. Does he do so <clears throat> by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right now, when we visit the Galatian church, <clears throat> this is a church with a discrepancy. Can, can I say this to you? Because most of us, I don't think, think this way. They were having a discrepancy between the ministry of the Spirit and their experience. But sometimes we don't go there. We think Galatians. What's well, the church in Galatia? They were, they were thinkers. They were, these, they were these egghead people who had some ideas that were wrong. Okay, well, you can, you can think that. But how is it that any of us get led into the truth? This is, this is what Peter preached on. How do any of us get led into the truth? By the Holy Spirit. You, you don't get led into the truth by your own effort, by your own insights, by your own intelligence, by the collected intelligence of the church. It's the ministry of the Spirit who's given to lead us into the truth. So these guys have departed from the truth. You, you have a ministry of the Spirit problem in Galatia. You don't just have a ministry of the Spirit problem in some other churches that we find here. Right? Sometimes we can say, well, oh, that, that church is dead. What, what do you mean by that? 
dead because they don't have the spirit moving in your preset stations, whatever those are. Well, they could have some stuff happening over here. According to this, I mean, they got the spirit was given and God's working miracles amongst them. We might say the spirit is moving there until you find out that they have polluted the doctrine of God, done so, so badly that they received the most severe rebuke of almost any church in Scripture. So there's a discrepancy here. There's a lack of a move of the Spirit taking place in this church. And, and this is not a, it's not a new church. So not new believers. These are people who are into their walk some distance. So, so if you will, they've, they're in the middle of the Ziploc bag here. And, and Paul doesn't say, let me, just, let me just fix this right here. Let me just crimp this point right here. He says, no, no, to fix this, I'm going to have to take you back to the beginning of the bag here. From the beginning. This is, this is what needs to get fixed. Your understanding of how did you receive the Spirit in the first place. And this is why this is so important, I believe, for this series. As we teach through and go through multiple aspects of the ministry of the Spirit, you are going to find discrepancy in your experience. How do you fix that? Well, you, you go back to the beginning to realize, how did you get the spirit at all? How did you in any way at all begin to be the recipient of the work of the spirit ever in your life? Make sure that's the starting point for what we're going to seek to receive from God by the spirit. Well, he references Abraham here. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. He says, you received the Spirit in the same way that God related to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now turn over to Genesis chapter 15. A little bit later, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Can you guys start circling maybe how many times you see the word I in these next several passages that we look at and who that I refers to? I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, and behold, you have given me no offspring. Remember, my house will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. All right, this is... This is the beginning of God relating to Abram. This is the moment that Galatians is trying to refer the Galatians back to. How did you receive the Spirit in the first place? Well, you received the Spirit in the same way that Abram entered into relationship with God. Now, 
the history of Abram is, is who is this Abram? For us, he's, he's, a, he's a Sunday school lesson. He's a VBS character. It's like somehow he's always been a good guy. Okay, but that's not biblical. Abram was not always a good guy. Abram was a heathen. Abram was an idol worshiper. Abram was an enemy of God when God found him. Right? Joshua 24 says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram, and Nahor. And they served other gods. Abram was an idol worshiper. Then I took your father Abram from beyond the river, and I led him through all the land of Canaan, and I made his offspring many. Right now, we're, at this point, we're in the middle of the Ziploc bag here, right? We're down the road a piece. How did we get here? How did the people of God get to this place where Joshua is addressing their situation? Well, he says, from the beginning, God chose an idol worshiper. God chose a man who was unworthy. And God lavished his plan upon this man. That's what happened from the beginning. Right? Now, when it comes to the spirit, let's, let's not remove the spirit from how God is dealing with his people. Right? Because that's what the Galatians are needing to get right. From the beginning, when you receive the spirit, did you receive the spirit differently than the way in which Abram received from God? Did you receive it differently than that? No, you did not. God came to you in all of your unworthiness and bestowed upon you grace and mercy. Right? This is what I put in your outline as the Abraham equation. Unworthy recipient plus the grace and mercy of God equals God's purpose in election. That's what you read in, in Romans. You find out that God had this purpose. God has always had this purpose in dealing with a particular group of people in order that his purpose would stand for all eternity. What God never did was to put that plan into man and make man now the basis for whether or not that would ever happen. That would have been the biggest mistake ever. Because the moment we become the basis for what God's going to do next, the deal is over. It's one generation long, and it's not even the whole generation. So God's plan was to interact with man based in his own grace and mercy. He would find unworthy recipients, and he would bestow upon them grace and mercy, and his plan would continue in their lives. That's the Abraham equation. That's the equation for you and me, too. That's how he received the Spirit, and that's how we receive the workings of the Spirit also. Right? Now turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Familiar passage to us from about a year ago. The Bible should just kind of flop open to that spot, huh? Ezekiel 36, verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land for the idols which they had defiled it. 
I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came into the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land? Right now, right now, this is a people in touch with unworthiness. This is a people that not only have lived selfishly and idolatrously, but when they got moved out of the land, they profaned the name of the Lord in their going, in the manner of their life, in the fact that they had to leave the land of promise. Now, what does this do for the name of God? You get a bunch of people kicked out of a land that supposedly that's Yahweh's land that he gave to his people, and then they've all been kicked out. Hmm. I guess Yahweh's not as great as Baal because, you know, Baal was in the land before, and look, they've all been kicked out. So I guess he's really not the ultimate great God that these guys have made him out to be. Or he's this weird God who turns on his own people. He's turned on them. You guys have profaned my name. Right? This, this is not a good day. These are not good candidates. God wants to do something in his midst of his people. These are not good candidates for that to take place. But look at what God does. Look at verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see Abram and his equation in these people? God takes an unworthy group of recipients and determines that he will lavish upon them grace and mercy and he will give them his spirit. He will give them his spirit. How did you receive the spirit of God? Because I hope you see where I'm going with this. If you get into the middle of this thing and you start trying to achieve the spirit of God as we walk through these, because you keep bumping into discrepancy, and, and I know I'm supposed to be here, but I'm here, and, and you're going to try and close the gap, by, but you're going to try to achieve, you're going you're to try and get God to move by you achieving God moving. How did God move in the first place? He moved amongst the people whose hearts were wayward, who are idolatrous, who didn't have affection for him. But he said, for, for my own sake, I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this, and I will, I will, I will, I will. You, you don't see much of what they're doing here, do you? 
you see a lot of what God is doing. And then interestingly, chapter 37. I say interestingly because obviously in our mind, well, chapter 37, it follows chapter 36, Keith. Well, you know, if you read the prophets, you're reading prophecies that have been grouped together. So it's, it's not an unfolding of chronological activity. It's thoughts that are placed together side by side in passages. So we, chronologically, there's argument as to whether this chapter even belongs here or later. But here it is, right after God is saying, I'm, I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. I think there's a reason why it's here next. Chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, here we go again, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Who's the the recipient group in this passage? Some dead bones, some very, very dry, dead bones. But yet when God is done, he has put life in them, 
He has formed flesh on them, and they have come to life. Now listen. I wonder how it is that that you and I deal with the reality of what we contribute into this whole desire for a move of God in our lives. Do you see your contribution in these passages? You and I are the unworthy recipients. We're the very, very dry, dead bones. We're the idolatrous, self-serving, God-ignoring, name-profaning people in Ezekiel. That's who we are. It's kind of rough to be in that spot, isn't it? I don't, I don't know if we know what to do when we're in that spot. And this is where the Galatians got in trouble. Because it's one thing to recognize, oh, yeah, I remember when I, I, remember when I was in that spot. Before, before, when I was lost, you know, and I didn't know the Lord. And, yeah, my life was full of waywardness and selfishness and pride. And, and then God came. And, yeah, yeah, I remember that. But, see, that's not the problem the Galatians are having. The Galatians... They're, they're the people of God. They're, they're midstream here. They're, they're down the road now. And they have felt some kind of a need to add something of themselves into the equation. And they have fouled the whole thing up. And Paul's having to fix that by saying, wait, wait, is, is that how this happened in the beginning? You, you made that happen, right? No, no, that's not how it happened, is it? That's not how it happened for Abraham. It's not how it happened in Ezekiel. That's not how those dry bones, those dry bones didn't do anything but be, just be dry, very dry bones. Hopeless dry bones. And then the Lord came and said, I will, I will, I will. I wonder if you're here this morning and you're in touch with your own discrepancy in your life. Here's, here's who I was praying for, especially for this service. I was praying for people in verse 11, chapter 37. People who say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are indeed cut off. My, my walk is dry <clears throat> I feel distant from God. I, 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 I can't imagine God would move in my life. The Spirit of God would do anything in my life. As though the way in which we're going to get God to do something is to become more than something that's just dry, dry bones. See, there's a mystery to the work of the Spirit, isn't there? The wind blows where it will. The Spirit of God comes and blows upon our lives. And, you know... We're not called to be windmakers. God in his grace is a windmaker. These, these guys came to life by the Spirit because God is a gracious God. Because God is abounding in mercy. Because his purpose in your life is going to continue. So, you know, how do any of us move from where we are deeper into the things of God? How are you going to move this morning? 
Or might it just be because God is gracious and merciful, no matter where you are? Do, do, you, do you think anybody's here is more idolatrous than the guys in Ezekiel chapter 36? But Keith, you don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't, you don't know what disgrace I've brought to the name of God. You know, maybe, maybe I don't, but I, I get a play-by-play from Ezekiel 36 of a group of people who did do exactly that. And yet God came and said, but I'm going to do this in your life. What, what, what you've done is clear, but here's what I'm going to do. So what you've done is not hidden from God. God's not a stranger to that. But what do you think it's going to take for God to do any of this stuff in your life? What, what will it take for any of this to happen in your life? Do you have to build up currency? Do you have to kind of at least moisten up if you're really, really very dry bone? You've got to get a little bit of moisture going, a little bit of color. What's going to happen before God jumps into a dry bone life? Well, he just has to be merciful. And he is already that. And he intends for his purpose to continue in you, through you, through his people in an amazing way. That's what he did with Abraham. That's what he wants to do with us. All right, as, as Matt comes, and I want to have a time where we can allow the Holy Spirit to minister to some folks this morning. But I, I wanted to make sure before we travel too far into this series to give us some theological underpinning here, that when you bump into discrepancy, that you don't turn discrepancy into an activity that you, by the flesh, are now called to solve. That you posture yourself by faith to receive the grace of God. You don't, you don't ramp up so that God can ramp up. Right? God's already ramped up. When God came and found Abram, God was already ramped up. And Abram was as wayward as you can get. When God comes to your life, he's already ramped up. Just a minute. I, I, I want to I ask you to respond to God in just a moment. And I particularly have been praying for, as I said, those who feel dry and distant. Do you feel dry and distant from God? Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. But thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. I will bring you into a land and you shall know I am the Lord. I will put my spirit within you and you will live. Listen, some here, maybe you've never experienced 
the life of God coming into your life. I mean, you feel dry and you feel distant. And, and, and maybe it's because the Spirit of God's never come into your life. At some point, point there's, a, there's a moment when God, for the first time, goes from being some God out there to, to being the God who dwells in here. If, if you're here and you've not had that experience, listen, that's the solution to dryness, to distance from God. In just a moment, as some folks come to pray, if, if you want to experience that and you're in a place where you're saying, God, I, I, I want you to be my God. God, I don't want to be distant from you. I don't want to walk in hopelessness. I don't want to continue in the dry season that I'm in. I want you to come in my life. You come up with these other folks who are coming. But there's some of you here where you're dry and you're distant from God. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting to make yourself right enough and then you're going to come? Are you waiting to fix a few things in your life, a few categories in your life? You're, you're going to fix those and then you're going to what come and present that to God so that God would do in your life? Do you understand? You're dry. And God is full of grace and promise. You can respond right now. You come right now and receive from God. Let's stand up together. Holy Spirit, thank you for accessing our hearts and our minds, even right now as we're gathered together and you are with us desire to do things in our lives, Lord, things that we're going to remember, things that will leave a mark upon us. God, thank you that when we gather together, you gather with us in our midst. You are here. Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning sort of living in the frustration they just kind of can't get the Ziploc thing to work. Can't get their walk to work. Can't get their walk to change. Can't get zeal in their hearts to motivate them. Can't seem to get on track. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by your working did you receive from God by faith? God, this morning, would you draw to yourself those who have lived in the valley of dry bones? That's been their dwelling, Lord. Their experience has felt dry and distant and hopeless. Lord, this morning, you intend to interrupt that. You intend to declare yourself over the dry, dead bones of our lives. God, draw folks, even this morning, right now, open hearts, Spirit of God, bring convincing. Well, we, we have conviction and we need convincing as well. 
convince our hearts, Lord, as Abram was convinced and he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God, this morning, let's respond to you. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're experiencing just a dryness in your walk, as we get ready to move into a time of worship here, I want you to come up. I want you to come up and acknowledge, God, I believe that you're a God of grace. I believe that you're a God of mercy. Lord, I believe that, that you're not done with me. I believe from your word, Lord, that you want to put your spirit fresh upon my life. And you want to do a work of grace. Lord, not because I'm deserving it, but because of the way you are. Because you are merciful. So if that's you, I want, I want you to come out from where you are right now. Go ahead and come up. Make your way up here. I want you to encounter God. I want to just gather together. We want to encounter God. We want to take something away. We want the Spirit of God to leave a mark, to blow upon our lives. And I just want all of us here just begin to pray. You know, the one thing that, that the Lord says His people can do is to pray. We can ask God for great things. Let's begin to ask God just to blow with His wind upon lives. Merciful, Lord, thank you for thank you for grace.
believe the Lord would give grace to us this morning as a people to intercede for just a moment for people that we know who are in the valley of dry bones. Can you just let the Lord take you there for a moment? Who do you know? Who have you been walking with? Who, who have you not seen for a while? Who has been scattered in their walk that is living in the valley of dry bones? Because we're going to intercede for them, and I want you to take that person or people that are in your heart right now and, and begin to intercede in just a moment. Listen to this passage right here in the middle of chapter 36 and 37. He says, they will say, this land was desolate. has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Listen to this next verse. Thus says the Lord God, this also, I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will do it, and I will also let my people ask me to do it. Can we do this? Can we pray? I believe believe that there's folks, man, if I look back over the last 10 years of the church, how, how many people have been in our midst that are just scattered like dry bones and they're not here with us they were here with us they were here worshiping God right alongside of us and now they live in desolate valleys amongst other people with dry bones can you just turn around maybe in your seat right there You you can sit or you can kneel Let's just take a moment and just intercede. I believe God would give grace to us this morning to be effective in our prayers. So draw near to God with a heart full of faith, believing that God is going to give grace to your words as you pray before his throne to make an impact in people's lives. I want to see the day soon where we start seeing people in these seats who once were scattered into a dry place. God, by his grace poured his spirit out upon their lives. Thank you. 
Father, you said that you would let us ask for these things, that you would be pleased to receive these requests, that you are eager for us to pray for those who are in a desolate place, Lord, that you would so move by your spirit upon their lives that they would be, as it were, like the Garden of Eden. Oh, God, can we see that for these folks? Or that those whose cities have been burned and are left destroyed, God, could we see them yet standing before you again with fortified walls, hearts fully devoted to you, Lord, with their passion and delight once again in being your son or your daughter, calling on your name, joining with your people, extending your glory upon this earth. Lord, right now there are hundreds of names that are being lifted before you. Lord, you said you would let us ask. Lord, we're asking this morning. God, do you hear us? Lord, do you hear us asking for those who are in these places? God, rebuild and restore for purposes that are in you. Lord, we we don't come and ask because... We've achieved something, and Lord, the folks we're praying for don't have currency to spend either. Lord, we come and we buy bread, we buy wine without money. God, we come and we get from you without having anything to spend. Lord, we just come as those who want to receive. Lord, thank you. Spirit of God, thank you. Thank you for your work in our midst. Oh, God, we are aware. We are a people who live in discrepancy. But, Lord, we don't want it to be normal. God, awaken our souls. God, bring us near to you. You have said it, Lord. You will do it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Thank you.